Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Tēnā koutou katoa and welcome to The Hoon. It is Friday the 1st of September. I'm Bernard Hickey, co-host of The Hoon with co-host Peter Bale in Hoon Bay. Peter, how are you? Tēnā koutou katoa, Bernard. Uh, I think we should do an entire episode in Toreo because, uh, I wish. like I said, yeah. you know, and I want to bring this up again with um, our fabulous Wellington correspondent today when we get to New Zealand politics because I'm starting to feel a bit dark about the extent to which Te Ao Māori, Te Reo Māori are going to be really big election subjects. And yeah, I, this worries I, me a bit. I predict a rather dark period in New Zealand race relations immediately afterwards. And I think there might have to be some Pākehā journalists who've come back to New Zealand after 30 years living abroad to um, to call this out and say it's not, not good enough. Yeah. The, I mean, the, I just, sorry, let me just go and stick my neck out a little further. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's a tough place to be, uh, but things are heating up. You're right. The mood music ahead of this election is awful. I think the combination of what happened during COVID, the way that um, the issues were weaponized by Groundswell yep. and the, the anti-vax protesters, uh, the way that ACT have really gone so hard they really have. and sharp yeah. at co-governance and done in a quite well, actor at least are upfront about it, but the astroturf arrange uh, organisations yes. around it. I mean, as this week we've found a great With scoop Brash. from. I mean, I, yeah. I think we should possibly do an entire episode on this at some point, if you don't mind, Bernard, because it, it, it is clear to me, or feels clear to me, that the Labour Labour government did a very poor job of explaining co-governance, explaining mm. the direction of travel. I think also the lobby, the gallery in Parliament, the journalists possibly did a really poor job or didn't have access to really cover the Maori caucus over the last five years. But I just don't feel as though the it's fully understood that this is a forty-year process that you know started with Jim Bolger, has gone mm-hmm. through Doug Graham and uh, John Finlayson. Key, yeah. Chris Finlayson. We should maybe have Chris Finlayson on because I, you know, he it would be great. I, like yeah. I've told you, I've I've had to learn a re- learn and relearn a lot about this, but I I think it's a very dark part of New Zealand right now, and of course, the people who are grumpy about it are the ones who are going to vote. Yes, and uh, the success of ACT in the polls so far. Now, so far ahead in the polls from where they have been in the past, that National doesn't even have to bother to give them a nod and, nod and a wink to win Epsom on their own because they're so so clear of the 5% threshold. And uh, what's interesting, I think, is that in the past, Winston Peters would, would have been the one to hoover this vote mm. up. Mm-hmm. And he's lost some of that, uh, that sort of centre-right type vote to act. And uh, you have to say, David Seymour has the energy and the sharpness, as well as the parliamentary funds, to really connect with that audience. Yeah, and he doesn't give a shit about what he's what he's doing by creating this this false problem. I I, I noticed Francis Kincaid from uh, Kinraid, sorry, I'm from Australia, has mentioned that Albanese has this problem in Australia with the uh, referendum there on giving mm. 
Aborigines. A, and it's um, going to be on the same day as their election. Yeah, but it's just a, it's a Ooh. mad idea. You know, there should have been, I remember Bob Hawke and the compact, which didn't happen. Mm. You know, at least we're not in that slightly disgraceful situation. But, you know, we, I don't quite know how you would have a referendum on a treaty that's already been signed and, and in fact, is already in force yeah. and, and is in force through New Zealand's unwritten constitution. You'd have to rewrite most of the laws that have been um, put on the books in the last 30 to 40 yeah. years. And also, there's a big part of our culture now which is um, bound up in this, yeah. as it should be. Yeah, well, I was really struck, Bernard, this is what I mentioned to you before, that the uh, there's quite a good piece today about and Shane Curry, the former editor of the Herald's mm. analysis of um, RNZ viewing figures. And it shows that RNZ has had a really significant fall, particularly in Morning Report. And I'm aware that there is deep disquiet about mm. the use of Toreo. And, and sometimes it drives me slightly better, except that I now know that my Toreo, my piddling amount of Toreo has been actually hugely influenced by listening to Radio New Zealand. I mean, it can sometimes be contrived, but there's no doubt that it's representing the way New Zealand yeah. is rather than the way they want New Zealand to be in the past. And when you future, do that stuff, which is, for the a, first which is a version time. of its past, I'm sorry. Yeah, when you do that for the first time, uh, someone takes the pain, and in this case, it's RNZ's ratings, and it's a pity because you know the the excellent guy in Espina uh, really um, led the way there, and mm. uh, now that he's not a, as the permanent host of Morning Report, I think that's part of the reason um, that, that maybe Morning Report. Is not quite as popular as it as it was. Maybe, yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting that I just funny enough, Bernard, for for that other thing I do, I did a an interview this week and published a thing about a guy called Ros Atkins, who in the UK on the BBC has recreated the whole idea of explanatory journalism, and you know, Guyon did a did a you know to to be able to change an organisation like that as a journalist is is really extraordinarily valuable and very unusual politically. It's really hard to get big organisations to change, so I, I really admire um, what he's achieved with that. Catherine, do you want to tell us what's going on with the climate this week? And the, and the climate seems a little frosty towards the climate in terms of national dipping into the into the climate funds and Labour really uh, pulling back. Hi, yes, nice to see you again today. Yeah, there's been um, a lot of that this week, a lot of dipping into what was formerly ring-fenced funds for climate. So we have what what's called the Climate Emergency Response Fund, um, and everybody's dipping into that. Labor's dipping into it a bit, and National's going to get rid of it altogether, yeah. um, apparently. And that fund comes from the auctioning of emission certificates mm. to businesses, and it, it adds up to, you know, quite a few billions of dollars. And so for... And, to date, the um, current government has been ring-fencing ring that spending, and a lot of it to date has gone on mitigation projects, so things that will help us to meet our 2030 targets. But there's also a likelihood that in the future, a lot more of it would go towards climate adaptation mm. spending. So that's the kind of thing where, you know, that you can use to help recover from climate events like Cyclone Gabriel. Yeah, or- I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a hypothecated amount of money, not just a piece of money to go straight back into your back pocket. Yeah, exactly. And the question I have, um, I guess, if that money disappears out of that fund is what is the plan for paying for all of those climate exactly. impacts 
for all New Zealanders in the future. Like where yeah. where does that money come from, and and you know who who gets to carry the bag for that? Is it just future generations? We'll have our our cake today and let let future generations pay for it. Yeah, I mean, it's just I find it extraordinary, Catherine. It's such a irresponsible. It's a little bit in, in a weird kind of way. It's like the tinkering with GST or the tinkering with KiwiSaver. It's like something that should be bipartisan or quadripartisan, if if you know if if we have other representation, and just you know agreed because it's 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 actually quite even if the emission stand emission trading system isn't working perfectly yet, you know it's a process that is a that is one of the few things we've got. Yeah, this is a fascinating story because what essentially has happened this week is that Labor set the scene for this by slashing more than a couple of hundred million dollars from spending from their Climate Emergency Response Fund, by the way, without telling the Climate Minister, Hmm. (laughs) uh, who eventually got an apology from uh, Grant Robertson, although not Chris Hipkins. And uh, so Labor, for the last year or so, really, uh, since the bread and butter, you know, pivot to um, the things that matter, have been downplaying the climate fund, have been using it for other bits and pieces. They've downgraded the amount of money going for the electric car subsidies. Mm. And no surprise when along comes National and says, oh, well, you don't seem to want it much. I've got something I could use uh, that money for. Which is which just is funneling it straight back into my yeah. in, into the back and, pocket. Yeah. And what it's going to do is corrode the any sort of political support there is there for not just the Climate Emergency Response Fund, but the emissions trading scheme that creates the revenues for it. Essentially, both Labor and National threw the climate under the bus this week. The trouble for... Labor and National, and of course the rest of us, is that climate's bigger than the bus and it'll run mm. the bus over and us at the same time. Mm. And it is, it's not just irresponsible, it, it actually wrecks any sort of public approval or public acceptance of the need to deal with the, the climate. And Catherine's done some wonderful research and has an interview with Christina Hood, one of our real experts mm-hmm. on the ETS in which they've discussed the the theory and the operation of climate dividends. Because National called this a climate dividend when it clearly isn't. This was a an appropriation of money from a hypothecated fund into the general proceeds of the government instead of doing what, for example, Canada has done, which is to slice up the emissions trading fund money and hand it out equally to every citizen. And that means that if you are only using public transport, you still get the same amount of money that's come from the fuel taxes. And if you've got three double cab utes, you get the same amount of money as the person who's on the bus. So in effect, it is seen as fair, but at the same time, it is a very, very good way to have a just transition, i.e. the people Mm -hmm. who need the cash the most because they're hurt the most by the climate and who are able to access that cash Actually, that's much fairer in an equity sense than, you know, simply not having the tax at all. And we have this weird situation uh, where Canada, of course, puts huge subsidies into its oil and gas sector and and then at the same time taxes oil and gas Mm -hmm. and gives some of it back as a dividend. One of the nuances that Christina Hood kind of pointed out to me when I was talking to her about that is that we, in New Zealand, our ETS scheme is different to every other scheme in the world and that we have certificates for forestry. And so that reduces the total amount that you would have available to pay out to individual 
households as a as a climate dividend if you were going to split it out. But it would still what remains in that fund still adds adds up to a substantial amount of money on a mm. per household basis. So that might have been a different way that National could have handled it as a policy option. Yeah, and instead uh, they have not just wrecked a fund, but wiped out the potential to try to reduce our emissions and meet our Paris Agreement targets. Now, we know from Treasury's fiscal analysis of our gap between how we're going to reduce emissions and what we need to reduce our emissions, that uh, we are going to end up with a big deficit, which means we're Mm going to have to buy emissions credits internationally. Treasury says it could cost us up to $27 billion. So National, by hoovering up this money in the fund, getting ourselves a short-term tax cut, are creating a potential fiscal liability for future generations, not to mention the climate liability. And this is a very financial, very, you know, if you're talking about managing the government's finances, this is not how you do it. Also, it means that if our trade deal with Europe gets nixed because the Europeans have written into the agreement that we must meet our Paris agreements. The irony here is that National, the farmer's friend, is throwing the farmers Mm. under the bus with their inability to reach that target. Mm. The electric bus, Mm. yes. Yeah, one of the other nuances about that that I found really interesting, again, from Christina Hood, was the way that Treasury deals with that liability that we have under the Paris Agreement, because the Paris Agreement is voluntary and not a binding agreement, they don't account for any of this in the books. And that's why it's so easy for politicians at the moment to disappear all of these investments without having to explain the cost to the economy in the future, because it's actually not included on the books because Treasury, in their wisdom, decide not to. It doesn't meet their accounting requirements, so they don't uh, allow for any of that. Even though it's a formal international agreement, and uh, in theory, our entire climate policy has been set up to try and achieve it. Both sides of of government, National and Labour, say they've committed to it. They've signed agreements. Um, There's been a lot of words being said. Uh, Now's the time for the rubber to hit the road and for them to actually do something about it. And unfortunately, when the test came, they both failed. And uh, you'd have to hope that the youth in this election campaign really put their feet to the fire and, and give them a rollicking. But do they vote? Does the youth vote in New Zealand, really? Well, uh, they, the last two elections, there has been an increase in the percentage of youth who have voted, certainly in 2017 and again in 2020. The fear here, though, is that after six years of undelivered promises and frustration at um, how yep. things that should be done haven't been done, you do wonder whether the participation will drop. And you'd have to hope that the Electoral Commission's efforts, which were fantastic last year into in widening the acceptance and the ease of voting, continues, because otherwise we'd be in real trouble. Mm. And the Greens, I mean, what, it's been quite interesting listening to James Shaw, um, and I, I don't have a huge amount of time from him in the, in the past because I, th- I, th- I think he did put too much credence in some of the things that he promised in Glasgow and and so on. But you know, that's going to be quite an interesting dilemma for the Greens: the whole you know Labour pulling away from some of its commitments and and certainly national. Yeah, it will be interesting to to see what comes out on the election campaign because we still don't have National's emissions trading scheme policy properly, what they're going to do with agriculture. And um, the Greens at least are, are proposing their own ways to get to 
carbon zero, uh, obviously focused yep. a lot more on public transport, on uh, the use of buses, and and also moving to cycling and walking. Uh, that's the other thing that we did get uh, this week was you know a lot more detail on the transport policy, and one of the one of the things that I think uh, helped take the shine off it was uh, it wasn't a revelation. We knew they were going to do it, but uh, the actual numbers uh, were included along with the tax cuts that are being delivered, also there are new taxes coming in, and in particular yeah. uh, reimposing the fee on picking up your pharmaceuticals and removing the discounts for kids and disabled people. So you have the, the horrible situation where if you are young, childless, a renter, or disabled, you don't get much out of this national policy mm, at all. No. And mm. if anything, your costs go up. So it's a... It's it's a tax package designed really for uh, uh, people who own their own homes in the suburbs with a few kids that they have in childcare. They're the real beneficiaries of this, uh, particularly if they've got a couple of extra properties on the side. Yeah, but they've stolen from those kids' future to pay for it, basically. Exactly, exactly. And if you talk about intergenerational wealth transfers, that election policy, and I have to say Labour is not that much better, is is effectively a big old acceleration of that pulling the wealth forward and consuming it now and pushing the liabilities out to the out to the past um speaking of intergenerational wealth have you seen that robert is here bernard <laughs> ah we, we have lots of generational wealth generational poverty <laughs> <laughs> wonderful to see you robert thank you very much for, for great coming to see in. you guys yeah and um this week has been full of action Peter, you've been uh, writing about it for your uh, weekly uh, email um, to the spin-offs members. Um, tell us what you wanted to focus on. Well, I, I did, you know, inevitably I did a bit more on Prigozhin and the astounding cynicism that we saw from um, Dmitry Peskov, who I suspect is the third most cynical person in, in Russia after Putin, Lavrov, and, and you know, now that, now that Prigozhin's died, probably... Peskov can step up a step up a thing, and he said, "You know, we are investigating whether the plane might have, you know, whether it might not have been an accident, you know. But of course, it's an absolute lie that we had anything to do with it. You know, it is just stupendously cynical the whole the whole performance. And of course, we we now have a video from uh, Prigozhin on that trip to Africa that he made just the just a few days before the the crash, saying, you know, don't worry about me, I'm fine, tickety boo." You know, I'm. You know, people, people, people might want to off me, but I'm fine. And of course, he most certainly wasn't. I, I, I guess one of the other things that's going on, Robert, is that we're seeing a little bit of change in uh, on the battlefront in yes. Ukraine. A bit more probing, a bit more. You know, I, I don't know whether this is just a sort of reaction to all of those reports last week, uh, particularly the the leaks from what the un, unnamed people from the U.S. military saying. That they were concerned that that um, the, the counter counteroffensive wasn't moving fast enough. What what are you what are you picking up that what you think is going on there? Yes, there's been quite a backlash to those anonymous sources mm. of discontent about the pace of the counteroffensive. Um, there's been quite a strong reaction from respected observers like uh, Professor Phillips O'Brien, who we've mentioned before, yep. but also. Um, General uh, Ben Hodge, who's also uh, a very good, astute observer of what's going on, they're dismissive about that. And they basically said what uh, Mr. Budanov, uh, head of uh, Ukrainian intelligence, has been saying is that 
the counteroffensive doesn't have to go at a particular speed, but it does have to achieve particular objectives. Mm. And I think what they're clearly working at now is a multifaceted push forward. We spoke last week, they captured a town called uh, a small settlement called Robertine, which is very important because it provides the gateway to a, a place called Tokmark, which yes. is considered critical if if we're going to go all the way through to the Azov Sea. Well, yes, but if the Ukrainians can seize Tokmark, and they're about 10 miles away from it at the moment, so they're not that far away, they have the ability to basically severely disrupt the whole of the Russian occupation in eastern Ukraine. And um, so they're not far away, and they're making steady progress. They're moving towards a, a place called uh, the Berth. They've also, and something else we've discussed before, but it's really accelerated, and that is they've been carrying out relentless drone attacks mm. in Russia now. Including the town of Peskov, miles away. Well, yeah, but look, they damaged about $200 million worth of top-notch Russian aeroplanes, these heavy lifters, these huge Absolutely. planes that mm. are very important. In, in We don't know if it's four, it may be five, but it's serious damage by Ukrainian drones. The interesting thing is there is a, a growing con, uh, suspicion in the Western world that these drone attacks have actually been launched within Russia because yes. air defences have been so powerless, Russian air defences have been so powerless to intercept them, whereas if they're launched from Ukraine, uh, Russian planners and people responsible for air defence get much more time to intercept them. But the other thing is that the Ukrainians are making the point that the Putin regime has never been psychologically or military prepared to deal with the war coming into its backyard. Mm. And that's mm. exactly what they're doing. And I think it is unnerving quite a lot of Russian military commentators. If you follow the Russian media this week, uh, state TV, some of their Putin's favorite pundits are literally biting the carpet with anger. I mean, they just beside literally themselves. Literally biting the carpet? Well, not quite. No, I'm, I'm exaggerating, <laughs> but you get my they're drift. Grumpy. Yeah. They're grumpy. Yeah. They're, they're going over the top, yeah. and mm. uh, they they are shocked and angry, and they're demanding the Russian air defences immediately improve their performance. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things. I don't know whether you noticed, um, Robert, that it's been kind of drone week, and it looks to me as though the the, the Ukrainians have really. I mean, apart from having those attacks on the Antonovs at uh, Peskov. They've hit, hit uh, Moscow again a couple of times. A, yeah. a couple of things that I've seen on this, The Economist has has a lot on this this week. Um, one is that the Ukrainian government has allocated a billion dollars to drone development. Uh, and then there's this <laughs> wonderful line that some of the attacks on Moscow are said to be not officially directed at all, but they're being directed by some of the, uh, shall we say, kind of uh, startup drone manufacturers in Ukraine who are trying to prove to the government that they can actually get there you know so there's a, there's a sort of mission testing thing here going on and i also saw there was a there was yeah. a report that they were using australian drones which was quite and, interesting and made of cardboard they're cardboard brilliant. and rubber they're, they're, yeah they're sustainable drones well i suppose i suppose australian drones could be used because they're not a member of nato that's right i thought that was a really interesting aspect yeah selensky is always giving an undertaking that he would never use NATO weapons for operations within Russia, although he said Russia remains a legitimate military target 
particularly since many of the attacks on Ukraine are launched from Russia. So yeah. uh, the missile attacks. So uh, I, I don't see any let up now in what's becoming a, a, an interesting new phase of the war where Russian military airfields are systematically targeted. Mm. And uh, it's, yeah, I mean, it's a really, in, uh, the, other, the other interesting thing, I think, is that the Ukrainians have been quite innovative. They've been adapting the missile that sunk the Moskva yeah. in the Black Sea. You know, there was a great deal. This was a symbolic thing. Uh, that missile had a range about 200 miles, but they're working on making that apl uh, applicable to use on land. Uh, and that would boost their, their reach quite considerably. They and Also, they do seem, and the American commentators have uh, remarked very uh, favorably about this, that the Ukrainians seem to be the ability to improvise the use of weapons provided by others and make them yeah. work for them. And they're certainly doing that with drones. Yeah, and they've and they've made the S three hundred anti air missile into a land missile. No, it's been it's very innovative, and of course taking it to the taking using drones to take it to the aircraft on the ground is a really good way to sort of compensate for their almost total lack of any air superiority, which of course yeah. the Russians have. There was also some some reporting this week, Robert, that um, Ukraine fears that the Russians are preparing, are sort of holding back at the moment and preparing for a really significant. Early winter attack on energy supplies, as they did last year, of course, with attacks on you know city power stations and that kind of thing. They may be, uh, but what I've noticed is that they are carrying on with this process of targeting ammunition dumps in occupied eastern Ukraine, and as we've said, they're 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 they're, they're going beyond the occupation zone. They are hitting Russia itself. Uh, there's also the psychological dimension to this, which I think. Um, mm. The Zelensky regime is eager to exploit. I think the perception now in Kiev is that Putin's particularly vulnerable after the Prigozhin mm. challenge. They know there's very there's terrible problems of morale in the Russian army, and I think by stepping up the campaign to include targets in Russia, they're trying to demonstrate to the Russian population that perhaps Mr. Putin is not actually acting in their interests. And uh, it's actually very worrying for a strong man leadership, inverted commas, when the strong person or self-proclaimed strong person can't actually reliably defend key facilities mm. in the country that's launched the invasion. And that I, I think we will see an upsurge of political infighting in the not-too-distant future in Moscow. I wondered, uh, Robert, just uh, moving around the world a bit, this week coming up is the G20 meeting in India, which is mm. uh, getting a lot of attention and exposing the tensions between India and China again. Mm. Uh, it looks like President Xi isn't going to go, <laughs> which is like a slap in yeah. the face to um, Modi as well. And uh, we've heard that China, just to rub it in, uh, put out a bunch of official maps just casually pointing out that big chunks of India were actually China, which hasn't gone down very well. Um, what, do you, what do you make of, of what's going on there between India and China? Well, there's been long-running tension in territorial terms. There was actually, I think, some conflict a few years ago in the yep. Himalayas, which led to quite high casualties on both sides. And you're quite right. I mean, the Chinese, if she doesn't go, that's clearly a snub to a country which has also got 
quite impressive economic growth. And he doesn't want to give India a platform, I think, really. That's what really uh, part of the reasoning. But the interesting thing is I was interested, Bernard, when you were talking about this map that's been released, because the Indians mm. are not the only ones alarmed <laughs> that part of India is included is China. Yeah. Part of Russia is also included in this 2023 map as oh, part really? of China. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh uh, an island which had previously been divided between the two countries under a so-called amicable settlement of 2008. Well, the Chinese have now reclaimed the whole of that island, the Bolshoi Usurich island, and um, it, it's just on the border region between the two countries. And uh, that apparently has also caused considerable irritation in Moscow. Although, of course, at the moment, Mr. Putin's in no position uh, to take the Chinese to task because um, China, by all accounts, is providing some technical support for the the Russian war effort. But uh, yeah, it, it is interesting that the, the the whoever's responsible for maps in China doesn't seem to have much concern for political sensitivities. Well, it's one thing of, to get it you know, wrong we, on one country like India, but another thing to get it wrong on another one like Russia. Well, we know we know from the nine dash line that you know there's a there's a fairly <laughs> steady creep going on there. Yes, mm. there is, and uh, obviously the, the sort of limitless approach to diplomacy. Yeah, I wanted to remind myself. Of course, it's called the line of control, the LAC, which uh, runs between, you know, really, pretty much along the border of 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 what used to be Tibet, or well, what is Tibet, but mm. uh, is no longer an independent country. Robert, let me let me ask you one last question before. before is it right, Bernard? If I just go for what it. it, in your um, lectures at the moment. How are you addressing Ukraine in there? Is, it, is there a part of this where you get together with your other your students? Well, with it their... depends on the course. So the, the first year level uh, might talk about the U Russian invasion of Ukraine. Does it signal a new, you know, inverted commas, a new Cold War? Just to get the students thinking about whether we're seeing a return to, if you like, um, institutionalized conflict internationally. At the, th the third year level, um, US foreign policy, we'd look upon it as a how did the Biden administration respond? Mm -hmm. At the second year level, um, for New Zealand foreign policy, we look at it in terms of uh, what it means to the international system, what does it mean for the international rules-based order, which New Zealand has a pretty heavy dependence on, and yeah. also, is New Zealand doing enough uh, to you know, ask this question that students can pursue it uh, in relation to this issue? When you look at Australia and Canada and countries like that, and yeah, and at the master's level, we look at it both legally and politically, uh, the the, Rush, the legality of the Russian claim to Ukraine um, and also the international politics. Why did Mr. Putin embark upon such a high-risk episode? And, you know, so we explore it in, in those sort of angles. Yeah, interesting. Thank you very much, Robert. I think it's really interesting to see what you do in your day job. <laughs> yes, and, and also um, a compliment. I have a nephew... Uh, who is studying at Otago and is in your course and was very impressed um, with uh, with the course. So we are hoping oh, that that the hoon gets distributed to all of the students in October uh, in Otago. Apart from anything else, anyone with a .ac.nz email address has access to the full uh, subs the top subscriber tier on the Kaka. So tell everyone who's your student that they can listen to the hoon every week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I would certainly plug it. Um, I think all of us present have a, an interest in that. But 
putting that to one side, I actually, I think quite a lot of students already uh, watch it, uh, oh, cool. Bernard. So, oh, uh, that's kind of, well, I, I, you know, I mean, I think that's quite interesting. I, I, mm. I thought it might have just been people, sort of politically interested people in Wellington and Auckland. But in fact, uh, quite a lot of students are taking this in. So, and they raise, well, they raise that in class as well. That's because oh, they great. can skip your lectures and just watch this and to find out what you what you what you think. <laughs> oh, they don't always agree with what I think, but that's no, that's the point. No, of it, no, isn't exactly, it? exactly. Yeah, Josie, you fabulous person. Actually, I, um, on that, Robert, it, it's very interesting because I went back to university a couple of years ago to study international law, and if I had if I'd been based in Dunedin, I would have would have um, come along to some of your lectures because I thought I'm having I'm having these rapidly ill-informed opinions and and going into the media talking about the invasion you know the war in Syria and um, uh, uh, trade deals and thinking actually I don't know what I'm talking about so um, and it's well that's never stopped that's never stopped me Josie and I think that's almost <laughs> the definition of journalism and in fact, I what would I've, love what I've... to do your courses Robert. What, what I've Thank noticed you, is that we've taught Robert to talk bollocks as well. That you know, I, no, I, I think no, my, no, my no, Irish grandmother no, used to say, "Never let, never let the facts get in the way of the truth." Yeah, so. yeah. Robert's well yes. out ahead yes. of his skis but on certain talks things. Informed bollocks. He's got that's the that's the secret yeah. to have Jesus some facts. Christ. Good quality. Good quality. <laughs> Thank you. JC, it's lovely to see you. Um, thank you very much for uh, for coming in. We're, we're getting to the, you know, it's starting to heat up, not just in Wellington. This week, uh, Parliament rose for the election. The 2020 to 2023 Parliament is officially a done thing. And uh, mm. this weekend, the both parties will, both major parties, in fact, the Greens as well, will be uh, launching their campaigns formally. What did you make of this 2020 to 2023 Parliament? I think it's the 59th uh, 53rd Parliament. 53rd Parliament. 53rd, 53rd sorry. Yeah. It, it has felt like government by the scream emoji. In, in, mm. it, it, I mean, it's been the sort of wildest of times and yet very little boldness in ideas. Um, it, it's been the, I don't know, in my view, it's been the worst of times and the most mediocre of times. You know, so it, it's actually been a really, I think, a really volatile, um, disruptive time in our political history without it, and very tribal, without it being a contest of ideas. So it's been both the most frustrating and also the most kind of, um, you know, busy and 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 mm. um, uh, kind of frantic political time. I mean, I mean, I've never known our politics be more tribal and yet lack ideas. There have been a lot of bold mm. ideas around, but none of them have come from the government. No, but when you, when, when you go tribal, when you go tribal, it ceases to be about ideas and it becomes about identity, doesn't it? Yes, exactly, Peter. Yeah. So so we've we've lost some of the yin and yang of politics, I think. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, in my view, and I, you know, I was born in New Zealand, I grew up in England, under Thatcher, you know, under sort of 18 years of Tory rule, I, I have never known a, a a sort of era of politics where mm. we have been more disunited. I mean, mm. it was easier for me as a sort of, you know, Labour lefty in the UK to fight Thatcher. I knew what we were fighting against. <laughs> Not sure I got it You're right. You're too young to have done that. Yeah. But it just it just feels like I it, yeah, that that our politics has been 
in many ways degraded during this time. And we've seen this, even just the last few weeks, we've seen the, the exit of some backbenchers who were so anonymous. It's like they've been in the best witness <laughs> protection program ever. Um, and and we've had some of the most spectacular. Again, it's been very entertaining, but completely lacking in delivery, this mm. period of this parliament. Mm. Um, but we've had some spectacular examples of self-destruction of, of not just ministers, but also MPs in the opposition. So, you know, just think back to Gurav Sharma. I mean, we thought that was the most spectacular oh, yeah. piece of self-destruction. Yeah. yeah, political disruption. And But then, little did we know, we had, you know, Kitty Allen, Mecca Faitari, Michael Wood to come, and not to mention the, the most unqualified person to ever enter Parliament, in my view, Sam Uffindel, who um, seems like the National mm. Party's just trying to keep he him He was quiet. just on the tip of my tongue, as it were, to suggest yeah. that, yeah, I can't wait to see what cabinet post he gets. You look at the opposition and you think, you know, it's, it's felt like kind of... Um, I don't know, drive-by leadership for the last three years. Yeah. We've had three different leaders in three years. Si- yes, Simon Luxon. That I've, I've just combined Simon, Simon Luxon. Yeah, no, that's, Simon Luxon's <laughs> a bloody good idea, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, Christopher Luxon, yeah, he has he, he has certainly brought oh, Judith Luxon. We could have yeah. Judith Luxon. There Judith we go. Judith Luxon brought, has brought unity to that, to that caucus. Um, but you still, he's never quite made the sale. I mean, he's certainly got more mojo happening now, but he's never quite made the sale. And it's still that feeling that you, you feel like he's, you know, he's a politician, that the next thing coming out of his mouth is going to be something like, you know, the corporate, the workshop on corporate synergy well, starts in 15 minutes. Well, if you, you, can't, measure, if, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Did you Did you see what he did in Parliament on the last day where in the midst of a big old rant about the country. He called it the company. The company. Yeah. <laughs> well, New yes, Zealand. And, and everybody, yeah. everybody jumped on that. But but you'd have to say, guys, if you look back on the last three years where you've had, you know, phenomenally popular leader in Jacinda Ardern, whose popularity dived before she left. I mean, it went down from sort of 50% or more, plus 50% down to 29%. Um, over this three-year period when there could have been so much achieved and there's a mm. lot of talk of government of transformation, what has been achieved? So th- the only thing I can yeah. think of as a tangible achievement is that we have Matariki public holiday. Yep, which is, I think, a really – and that, so that's a very good segue, Josie, to something that I was I was uh, raising with Bernard when, in our little chat at the beginning, which uh, uh, is that it concerns me profoundly – the extent to which Te Reo, Te Ao Māori and the rise of Māoridom is becoming a gigantic election issue, whether it raises its head or not. And, you know, this whole Don Brash thing this week was about him running an astroturfing campaign about Te Reo and, and migrants. Um, there's some ugly things sitting underneath lots of this this election campaign, it seems to me. And I, I worry how that's going to go in the next, you know, next first 12 months of, say, a, a national act coalition. It's it's interesting because I saw a great quote, which is sort of applicable to what you're just saying, from David Frum, who you know was obviously worked in the Obama administration. Um, so he's a lefty, um, where he said something quite profound. I thought that's a challenge to those of us on the sort of centre left of politics. And he said that it, if liberals don't respond to the things that voters say are the things. So he's talking about immigration and anti-immigration, the rise of anti-immigration. If liberals don't respond to the things that voters say are the things, 
then then voters will turn to you know far right fascist parties to do those things that the liberal parties won't do. Mm. So I think the other the pushback I would say on that is that you you've got to um, you've got to separate where there is a, a nasty sort of racist um, yes. strand. And you've got to deal with the things that voters say the things. And Absolutely. Talk- no, and, and especially people who do actually go and vote. You and, know, this yeah, is, this and is the, the other that, aspect of it. Well, everybody votes, hopefully. I mean, that, yeah. So, yeah, but they so, don't. You know, the, the grumpy people get out more than the, you know, the grumpy property owners that Bernard represents are getting yeah, out. You know, the they're point, getting out much more. The point I'm making, Peter, is not that. It's that you you need to understand that, that people have a genuine concern about co-governance, which is actually more to do with Absolutely. local democracy than it is to do with race. And, yep. they feel, and there's a feeling with a lot of people that, and this is what actors is is, is um, um, you know kind of feeding into. So unless liberals are going to respond to some of that and respond to the fact that um, uh, you know when you talk, I heard you talk earlier about Chris Finlayson and, and under national some mm. fantastic devolution stuff that happened. Yeah. To, uh, and yeah. you know Panaora um, is an amazing success, really. Um, so there's a there's a valid debate to have about co-governance of national assets. And devolution to and of resources and money and decision making to local communities, i.e., iwi, Māori, or local councils. So, if we're not having those debates, you're going to drive people. Right. Absolutely, no. I think you're right, and I think the media has a really important role in that too, Josie. And I, I'm not sure yeah. that that has been well well done. But either. demonising but Bernard, David Seymour isn't going to be the way to do that. Oh, I know, but he's he's such an easy target. Let me do that at least <laughs> once and once every yeah, episode, okay? The great thing about ACT is that even Roger Douglas has said that they're too right-wing and they help the rich too much. And I'm thinking, <laughs> what the hell is but going on here? What's interesting yeah. is that Roger Douglas's son is going to be a candidate for ACT in the electorate, I think in Hawke's Bay. Um, but what I've found sort of profoundly saddening, actually, about all of this is that I've been following the Three Waters debate uh, quite closely now for four years. Uh, because it's it really plays into my you know infrastructure finance geek side, uh, and that's what it's all about. It's about how do we get the right pipes built in the right place and get them paid for, so that we can build lots of houses. And Labor, to its credit, realised this was an issue. The problem yes. was instead of addressing it openly and saying, hey, "Here's an opportunity for us to reinvent our water system to make it." Uh, cleaner and cheaper and deal with climate and really um, engage people at the grassroots, so to speak. Uh, uh, let's do this thing. Um, we can get around this problem we've got with, you know, a government's not being allowed to borrow and uh, council's not being allowed to borrow and we can come together for three waters. It will save us money in the long run. But instead, what happened, and we often see this with what I call progressive uh, governments in the modern era, which is they realize or they don't feel that they can actually argue the case for a politically uncomfortable uh, project Mm. and will instead try legalistic or very quiet, you know, accidentally on purpose, oh, look, we've just changed this policy and you can't change it, sorry. And, And it leads to this whole... Distrust, actually. You know, suddenly you, the thing with Three Waters, I think, that bubbled up and shocked everyone is that it had been around for a couple of years before Groundswell, but because we saw the foreign minister and, and local government minister, that was a mistake to have them both in the, 
in um, in her hands at the same time. But Nanaya Mahuta, her style is not to engage with the broad public. And again, I think it comes to, you know, what is the flavour of this parliament, this, this, this three-year term that we've had? And it's been wild but not bold. And, and that's mm. part of the problem is that there's been very little political courage, which is actually the most important quality of politics and politicians, I believe. Yeah, there's been very little courage to go out. If Labour had argued for a tax switch, um, you know, and started doing that when they were, at, you know, when Jacinda was so popular, mm. I have mm. no doubt because all the polling globally shows that there is huge support now since inflation, since COVID, since the cost of living mm. crisis or a tax switch. In other words, you know, yeah. a capital gains tax or a wealth tax. And again, you're quite right. If they'd had the courage to go out and go, um, status quo is really passionately argue for this, but not just explain and argue, also listen and take on board legitimate concerns about it, mm. then we wouldn't be in this position now. As it is, yeah, they look tricky. Um, they look like politicians kind of trying to, you know, game the system to get what they want. Um, and, the, and the massive... The other thing, the final thing I'll say, and then I'll shut up. The, 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 no, the don't. I got to, I'm, I'm busting to ask you two things, but, but don't shut up. Well, we've had the rise of centralisation, which is such so ironic mm. when here we are talking about, you know, devolution and, and, and devolution to communities, to iwi. But actually, we've had a massive centralisation of public services, and that's a real problem, and people don't mm. like it. So, Josie, a couple of questions, please. Or one, one is, where, and we're getting some assertions from this from our, our lovely audience, which is, you know, let's not forget that the, the 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 Labour government for three years was derailed by COVID, and I think that that is true. Yeah. Um. You know, it did take courage. It was very effectively done, given in the circumstances. What? what um, Except for Jacinda gave up on the capital gains tax before COVID, but anyway. Correct. But what's what's the um position of the Greens. I, I'm quite struck wow. by some of those recent polls that show the Greens quite quite seemingly quite high in the mm. in the polls. Do you think Labour votes are going to leak to to a more genuine version of, of them in a sense in, in the Greens? Well, let me take a focus group of one, which is my yep. mother, who's been a that, um, well, Jesus, Labour who would, you know all her life, um, and, and I grew up in a Labour family, and for the first time ever she's voting Greens because she, she wanted to see a, a change to the tax system, and so she's sort of doing a protest vote to the Greens. But I think what you'll find is that as a whole bunch of, and we're already seeing this when La Labour ruled out New Zealand first for a reason, and we discussed that last week, you know, there's a lot of Labour voters that, that don't like the Greens are not their old-fashioned Labour, and they what? But they want to they want to reconfigure a national act government with a little bit mm. of Labour light in there, or some lab, some sort of you know ideas around manufacturing and local communities and regional development and so on. They'll vote New Zealand First. That's why New Zealand First is going up. Is that the Labour vote? I think is disintegrating. Oh really? And going oh, really? both ways. People people who want to build Renaults and Thames again. Well, or just people who want to build anything, Peter. <laughs> it's like yeah, can we yeah. have something in the regions? Um, so I think I think that yeah, I think that there's look the thing about to answer the question from people listening. You know, yeah, absolutely. The government got derailed by um, COVID, and um, you know that, that every government in the world did, right? So you have to ask the question why? You know, why are we not doing better? And the thing, if you think about, you know beginning of this government, they talked about child poverty, reason for being in government. 
Um, it, of course, it was going to be difficult with COVID. But the problem, I think, is not you know litigating the rate of child poverty. Have they made yeah. any difference at all? It's more that there was no big idea to fix it. There was a lack of um, um, imagination and um, courage to come up with something that might make a real difference. So rather than litigating the stats on it, it's the, just the lack of what I call signpost politics. We were weather vane politics. It was, you know, mm -hmm. where where yeah, are we yeah. going now? Rather than um, let me let me persuade you, we need to go down this route here, and let me make the case, and let me convince you. And people can see through it. I and mean, this is the thing about Christopher Hipkins, Chris Hipkins' uh, decision uh, a few weeks ago to rule out a capital gains tax. He thought he was sucking the air out of the debate. But what he was doing was sucking the air out of his own supporters. Suddenly they were winded mm. on the yeah. on the campaign trail going, oh, what's the point of this? You know, What do we stand for? Mm. Yeah. You therefore ask yourself, why is it that David Seymour and ACT have done so well? And of all the small parties, they've been the sort of success story of the year, haven't they? Whatever your politics. And, I, and it is that even people who disagree with ACT kind of go, well, at least I know what you stand for. And I, and I think there's a danger in Labour at the moment that, that the sort of, you know, oh, yeah, we'll go for the centre the centre because that's where you win elections. And there's a danger of thinking that the centre is some kind of, you know, compromise between, you know, some kind of third way between the, the right and the left, whereas actually it can be presented as a, as a muscular alternative to both the far left and the far right. They could have come up with free dental care. They could have come up with a tax switch and still gone for the centre. So, so the centre doesn't mean that 50 shades of beige. That's right. I mean, they were ready to go for it. Uh, David Parker had prepared the ground with the um, income, uh, with the Inland Revenue Research, which was pretty lay down, Mazia, there's an issue here. Treasury had been had done the work for the budget and he bailed at the last minute. I, on that issue of tax switches, um, you know, one of the, one of the great... Um, uh, big changes that the previous national government did, the first thing it did really, once it got in, was to engineer a tax working group and have a big tax switch. Uh, the great irony, of course, is that that tax working group recommended a land tax for income tax switch, and instead John Key went for the uh, GST increase for income tax switch. Now, we have yeah. a new national proposal for a tax switch. What did you think of their plan uh, this week? Well, I mean, I, you know, I have to say, I think it felt like opposite week, didn't it? I mean, suddenly you've got a national party, you know, proposing a tax cut to sort of middle income, not, you know, I mean, it's still not. not and, and advocating mass gambling online. And, and and paying for it by taxing the nasty rich foreigners buying our expensive houses and the gamblers and the, you know... Um, Buddy, I, I saw the thing in the Herald this morning, or I think it was yesterday possibly, uh, Australian an uh, uh, real estate analyst sees, sees New Zealand as being priced out of Remuera. <laughs> yeah, that happened a long time ago, right. So... So you had this weird sort of opposite week where you've got National doing, you know, tax cut for the for, for the squeezed middle, paying for it by taxing rich bastards, and then you had um, Labor doing a massive four billion dollar uh, um, spending cut um, and trying to look like, you know, look we can we can successfully yeah. and responsibly run run the fiscal policy on this side, and and you can't trickler, trickler Willis. 
Yeah, Trickle Willis. Yeah, which actually she answered that very well. I thought on TV, I heard her go. She was asked, "Do you mind being called Trickle Willis?" And she said, "Well, primary school, I was called um, Knickers and Willie." So yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> it was a very good answer. Um, she is. Yeah, we're going to yeah. have to bring gin. We're going to have to bring gin and tonics back to this show because yeah. because she did come on and had a have a, had a gin and tonic that Bernard made her in the offices of business desk. So we we need to get you doing that. Um, She's yeah, definitely smart drinking. Yeah, I should say also just to go back to your remark about about David Seymour. So uh, he is such an easy target, and I was really struck uh, this week by some profiles of the chief executive of Goldman Sachs, a guy called um, Solomon. And there's a, there's a line in one of the stories about him today, which just said, "He's a prick." And of course, I was reminded by Jacinda Ardern's remark, you know, sotto voce oh. of of, yeah. of uh, Seymour being an arrogant prick, which they both handled very well. But I very would well. like to say that he is very effective, and he also drives a Lotus Super Seven. So, you know, how bad? Oh, I think it's a Caterham actually. But how bad can he be yeah. if he's got a Lotus? Yeah. Well, and the thing is, you've got this. The, the the issue with with Seymour and Act is you've got this sort of grudging respect for the hustle. Right, so I'm in, in the yeah. press gallery. I get most press releases, and my inbox, you know, r- rises by the second. And you, you can be guaranteed whenever there's a news story, some sort of announcement, some scandal, he is always first out of the blocks, and it is Absolutely. always a finely honed three or four paragraphs of nail my colours to the mast and shoot you down before you even get out of bed. And he is, uh, and he's put some people around him. Whenever I've done any, hosted any radio shows or anything like that, um, you can all, if you've got a gap and you think, oh, how am I going to fill this half hour? I go, give David Seymour a call because he will always say (laughs) yes. (laughs) And good on him. He'll always have an hour of blather to to fit into 30 minutes. Even if it's like, you know, where, where are you going on holiday? He'll, yep, um, yeah. and he's on holiday, he'll do it. So, yeah. you know, good on him for that. But I have to say the quote of the week, and Audrey in the Herald um, today quoted James Shaw as, as her quote of the week. It is an excellent quote, actually, which he said in Parliament. He said, whilst the say, saying goes that the only two certainties in life are death and taxes, Mr Peters is doing his level best to try and disprove the first of those. Chris Hipkins, of course, is trying to disprove the second. It's <laughs> <laughs> very good. I actually, uh, yeah. my, my impression is that is that um, James Shaw has um, has grown some testicles in the last little while, and he's been quite um, impressive. It seems yeah. to me because he's pissed off. Well, also or he's allowed to be pissed off because we're going to an election campaign, I guess. Looking mm. back over the last three years of this Parliament, um, you'd have to say you'd have to hand it to him um, and and the Green leadership. There's been a civil war going on to to compete with Serbia. You know, this is Serbian level civil war, and the Green Party has gone, <laughs> <laughs> and, and it hasn't really surfaced too much. So there was that period of time, if you remember, I think it was last year. I can't remember the date now, but hmm. which schism Green are Party, we talking about? Yeah. Well, you wish the, yes, the people's the people, front of 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 yeah. the Green Liberation Front, or mm. the or the Liberation then, Front of the people's, yeah. Exactly. And the, and there was that they were. They were trying to get rid of James Shaw for basically because he wore a suit was all, the yeah. only explanation I could come up with. He just wasn't the right look. And so they they would they tried very hard to get rid of him and he survived that. And you know, you suddenly you had the a sudden kind of light shining on this civil war going on and it, it looked like 
Courtney Place at 3 a.m. You know, there were high heels being tucked at each other, people, you know, punch, throwing a punch. Well, it was nasty. So were they, so that, was they throwing on. bottles of kombucha? I, I wanted to see the greens drunk mm. on kombucha, and it's a lot of yeah. bottles. Bernard, I want to go back and tell you a tiny anecdote, which Josie may – I don't think Josie's old enough to remember this, but when you talk about your inbox coming in with press releases, I was in the lobby in the – what do we call it? Gallery in New Zealand. Press gallery, uh, yeah. When a fake press release – or sorry, a press release arrived with the headline, C'est la vie, c'est la guerre, and it was a press release – from some naughty national MP saying that George Gare, who nobody will remember because I'm the oldest person here, had defeated Muldoon and would be would be, you know, winning winning the national leadership context contest oh, over Muldoon. Goodness. Good fun. And of course it was completely made up. But oh. it became instantly the front page of the Evening Post that day. <laughs> it was reported fun. as straight news, c'est la vie, c'est la guerre, that George Gare was going to take over from Muldoon as the as the Prime Minister. It was did pretty it have your extraordinary. It? No, it most certainly it? did not. It was not, I know exactly <laughs> whose byline it had, and it most certainly was not mine. I'm not old enough to remember that. Thank you very much, no, Lisa. No, no. Good, good, good. So on, <laughs> on that note, Peter, it must be time for your skateboarding oh, dog. for the skateboarding dog. Well, the skateboarding dog is actually a skateboarding monkey. Today, because and it, it, you know, as we like uh, segways, the uh, Indian government has organised for the G20 meeting in New Delhi cardboard cutouts of langurs, which looked to me like a really large baboon, placed all around the city to um, try and scare the hell out of tiny little rhesus monkeys, who you know <laughs> are the naughty other other naughty stray cats of New Delhi. And they've hired another 50 people to make big langur noises to scare the rhesus monkeys away. And so they say, we cannot harm them or remove them, the monkeys. Our only option is to confine them to their forested areas. But enough about the 53rd Parliament of New Zealand. No. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> we've, got, we've, got cardboard, we've got cardboard cutout politicians rather than cardboard yeah. cutout monkeys. That's a problem. Well, right. at least at least they'll break down nicely in the in the tip. Anyway, thank you thank you very much both of you for being on the show. Josie, thank you so much for for dialing in, and uh, Peter Bale, uh, our co-host in Hoon Bay. Lovely to see you, and thank you very much to Simon Josie, our producer. Have a great weekend, everyone. Kakita no. Bye bye. Thank you, Bernard. Thanks everybody. <laughs> <laughs>